gang, you're listening to the smooth sounds of the QTR podcast. It's 7 o'clock in the morning. How the hell is everybody? Having a nice cup of coffee and had jotted down some ideas for things I wanted to talk about, but this Gavin Newsom story I just read set me over the edge, so fucking voila, you get a podcast this morning. This podcast, like all of my podcasts, is brought to you by my patrons, Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout out my patrons, then I'm going to give you some rules and disclaimers for today's podcast, and then we will get on with the show. First and foremost, I want to shout out my exclusive gold and silver providers over at JM Bullion. It is the only place that I buy my gold and silver, jmbullion.com. That link is in my podcast description. JM Bullion has been in business for... A decade now, they've done over $3 billion in sales. They turn around my orders very quickly. I'm very satisfied with the service they've provided me, and I'm not just saying that because they support the podcast. I told them, I said, if your service sucks, I'm not going to accept you guys as patrons, and I'm not going to shout you guys out. But it doesn't suck. And QTR podcast listeners have their very own JM Bullion sales rep. Her name is Kathy. You can shoot her an email at K-A-T-H-Y, Kathy at jmbullion.com. So if you've never bought gold or silver bullion and you have some questions, she will be more than happy to help you out. There's no minimums. There's no maximums. She'll give you $5 off shipping if you tell her QTR sent you. And just shoot her a message. Say hi. Tell her QTR podcast listener and, uh, and you wanted to reach out, see what she can do for you. J.M. Bullion also published a interesting read that's in my podcast description about precious metals coming out of the COVID pandemic, something I'll be talking about on this podcast. All those links are in my podcast description for free. This podcast also brought to you by my brother Sang Lucci and my friend Wall Street Jesus. I usually shout out the Steam Room, which is my favorite piece of software to track options flow and basically see where the big money is going in the options market. But today, I want to shout out the Sang Lucci Master Course, which uh, Lucci doesn't do often. I think he does it once or twice a year. It's uh, 16 sessions. It's a great way to understand market psychology, tape reading options from a guy that I'm telling you, I shouted him out on Twitter last night, not because he pays me, not because it was an advertisement, but because I know Lucci. I know he fucking knows what he's talking about. I'm happy to recommend him. I like him as a person. His master course, I think, starts on Monday, November 16th, which is in two days. And I think there's still time to sign up and join. Otherwise, you're going to have to wait uh, probably six months or however long it takes him before he uh, restarts the cycle. He doesn't do it often because the master course, it's like 16 sessions and it's spread out over like three or four weeks. So if you want to take the master course, the Sanglucci master course, go to 3ltplaybook.com. That is 3ltplaybook.com. And uh, and you should be able to get the link right from there. Let me check. Uh, and, and there's links to Lucci in my podcast description too. Um, nah, it's not on there. Just fucking hit up Lucci. Tell him you want to take the master course And if you tell him QTR sent you, he'll give you $250 off the master course. You can let him know the QTR podcast sent you. Um, Yes, it is $3,000 for the master course. Somebody complained yesterday. They're like, how can you recommend this? It's $3,000. Listen, this is not some fucking bonehead at the Holiday Inn Express giving you a lecture on the MACD in the RSI and trading using charts. Okay, this is like 16 sessions from a guy that knows exactly what he's talking about, has done very well for himself uh, financially, is an honest guy. He's just a good guy to do business with. And uh, he's somebody that, you know, this is a course I would take. Uh, I would be interested in hearing what Lucci has to say, and I don't give a shit about what anybody has to say. So links to Lucci are all in my podcast description. Find him, reach out to him, tell him you want a discount. If 250 doesn't work for you, maybe he'll give you more. Just tell him QTR sent you. He'll work with you. Uh, but the Master Course starts in two days, so check that out. This podcast also brought to you by my friend Pete Hedges over at The Trader's Path. The Trader's Path is a day trading community that I love to recommend because the guy that runs it, Pete Hedges, he started it after he got tired of the nonsense and bullshit of other day trading services that he thought were mm, maybe trying to take his money, maybe trying to front run him. He felt like he was getting the shit end of the stick. 
So, as one does in a free market, he created his own solution and his own product called the Trader's Path, which I am very happy to recommend and shout out because I like Pete. He's another honest guy, somebody I'd like to do business with. Pete offers a daily live stream. He offers daily watch lists. It's a great community to surround yourself with if you're looking for ideas, you're looking to bounce ideas off of other people. They trade options, equities, red markets, green markets. So really, whatever it is you're into, there's going to be a spot for you there. Links to the Trader's Path are in my podcast description. And Pete is another guy. You reach out to him, tell him QTR sent you. He'll give you whatever you need to get started. You want a trial? You want no credit card? You want an obligation-free whatever? You want a fucking discount? Just tell Pete I sent you, and I said it's cool, and he'll make sure that it gets taken care of. I have a small community of listeners. This is a community-run kind of podcast, and we all know each other here. You know, it's like in Rounders when they all sit down at the table in Atlantic City, and Warm just takes a bunch of chips from Mike. And the dealer's like, sir, you can't take chips from somebody else at the table. He's like, listen, we all fucking know each other here, so it's cool. It's that kind of situation. So happy to have you with me. I'm going to shout out some of my other patrons real quick, like my homies over at Corvus Gold, my friends over at Investors Underground and Traders for a Cause, uh, Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, Jay Mintzmeyer, my buddy Russ Valenti, I got to see you soon, man, Crichton Titus. How about Max Mulvihill, Kyle Thomas? You guys have been with me for a while. I appreciate you. And some of my newest patrons, my homeboy Ray, Daniel Reither, thank you for checking in. Derek Seifert, what's up, homeboy? Intellitrade.app is still in the house. Eric Goodwell, Rumble in the Jungle, my buddy John Fiorella. What is going on, motherfuckers? How is everybody? Sean Cole, I still see you, my man. Chris, Jeff Manick, all right. This podcast has a three-drink minimum. Today is Saturday. College football is going to be on in a couple of hours. Hopefully, you guys will knock a couple back today before and or while listening to this podcast. And also, this podcast is not life advice, investment advice. I'm not an investment advisor. I hold no licenses, no registrations. I don't want to hear you did great about something you heard on the podcast. I don't want to hear you lost money about something you heard on the podcast. Don't do anything that I talk about. And if you have any emotional problems, speak to your fucking therapist. Thank you very much. All right, with that being said, what do I want to talk about today? I saw a well-known financial news anchor panicking about COVID all week this week, all right? Let me preface what I'm about to say about COVID. COVID by saying a couple of things. First and foremost, the people that are the most susceptible to this virus, we have to take care of, okay? We have to protect the vulnerable. We have to protect the elderly. We have to give healthcare workers the PPE they need. We have to be in the debt of healthcare workers and the people on the front line that are going to work every day and dealing with the consequences of this virus and keeping up with growing numbers of hospitalizations and doing their part to help the country, okay? I think those people are patriots and we owe them a debt of gratitude. I also think that healthcare workers should be the first ones to receive any kind of debt forgiveness that we wind up doing in this country, which, by the way, I think is a bad idea in general. We'll talk about that later. But if we want to thank somebody, we want to kiss the ass of somebody in this country, let's do that for healthcare workers because they're very you know they're really they're they've been laying it on the line for the last six seven eight months it is a selfless job to be doing during the course of a pandemic and I want to make sure that those people are recognized so let's say that right up front now I want to talk about COVID and case numbers all right so we posted over the last couple of days The number of case numbers we've been posting in the United States has moved significantly higher. I think yesterday we posted something like 170,000 cases in the United States. And what I've noticed is a chorus of people on Twitter, uh, led by one financial news anchor I was watching particularly, but a lot of other news anchors are doing the same thing. 
that every day a new case number comes out, they are posting that number and are panicking on Twitter. And this is different from we need to manage, you know, the healthcare system. Uh, we need to be cognizant of the numbers. Let's look at the numbers in context of how many tests we're doing and how many deaths we have. This is pure panic. They see that number go up and it is a complete meltdown. So I want to make the point that those numbers are very high. But we also have to be cognizant of a couple of things, I think. All right. One is we have officially blanketed the country with testing. All right. We got a country of 350 million people where pretty much the entire country has access to testing at this point. Number two. We're at a point, which by the way, you know, we're talking about scores and scores and scores of people that didn't have access to testing four or five months ago. So the first couple of months when the positive case numbers started to trickle in and we had 15 or we had 50 or we had a thousand new cases a day, those numbers were actually much higher. We just had no idea because we weren't doing the testing. So The idea that we are uh, in the process of spreading this and that it is getting completely out of control, there may be a little truth to that, but there's also a lot of truth to the fact that we're revealing more and more positive tests that we hadn't seen in months past. So we have to take those numbers with a grain of salt and we have to take them in context. When you look at the percentage of deaths as a number of the percentage of total cases, that number has not moved up and has not stayed in lockstep with the number of cases that have gone up. And that's a positive piece of news. We're revealing tons and tons and tons of cases where people are asymptomatic. We're revealing tons and tons and tons of cases where people have very, very, very mild symptoms that are being mistaken for a cold, probably not even the flu. We've noticed that flu numbers this season, and let me get my information right, are at what the CDC calls historical lows. This is September 18th, 2020 from cdc.gov. Decreased influenza activity during the COVID-19 pandemic. The abstract to this report says that following widespread adoption of community mitigation measures to reduce transmission of COVID, the percentage of U.S. respiratory specimens submitted for influenza testing that tested positive decreased from 20% to 2.3% and has remained at historically low interseasonal levels. 0.2% versus 1 to 2%. Data from Southern Hemisphere countries also indicate little influenza activity. So do you have some crossover? People that have the flu and think they have COVID. People that have COVID and think they have the flu. Mishmash this one, the other. I don't get tested for either, whatever. Yeah, there's a lot of that too. According to the Center for Disease Control... Between October 2019 and April 2020, there were between 39 million and 56 million flu illnesses, and between 410,000 and 740,000 hospitalizations due to the flu, between 18 million and 26 million medical visits for the flu. Is COVID the flu? No, it isn't. Is it more deadly? Yes, it is. Am I saying that you should swap in one for the other interchangeably? No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is we're heading into the winter, which is where people are more susceptible to getting sick. And it isn't completely surprising that we are seeing this second wave, as it's being called, heading into the winter because of A, the weather is making the virus easier to spread which was a tailwind that we had during the summer that we don't have now. And at the same time that's happening, we have flooded the country with testing. So between the two of those things, 
And the fact that the flu also runs rampant around this time, the idea of going into pure panic about COVID, when really the reality of the situation is that once we make it through this winter, and by the way, the European case numbers I was looking at yesterday look like they may have already peaked for the second wave. Don't quote me on that, but the curve looks to be heading back down once again. We make it through this bump in the road here, through the winter, and the worst is over with. That could very well be the case. We have the vaccines that are being prepared to be distributed very late this year, very early next year. And as the seasons change and the warmer weather comes in, between that and the vaccines, even Fauci said, this is from The Hill two days ago. Anthony Fauci said Thursday, the global coronavirus outbreak will not be a pandemic for a lot longer because of the development of vaccines, striking a hopeful note even as the situation worsens in the short term. Certainly, it's not going to be a pandemic for a lot longer because I believe the vaccines are going to turn that around, Fauci said at an event hosted by the think tank Chatham House. All right, so if you're on the left and you're one of these people that's been very critical of the response to coronavirus, or you are just generally using it as a reason to panic on a daily basis, this is your guy. Fauci's your guy, right? Everybody say, Trump just needs to listen to Fauci. I like Fauci. I don't have any beef with him. This is your guy. He's saying, hey, it's not going to be a pandemic for much longer. So again, we see those European case numbers starting to come down. And at some point, we're going to see the U.S. case numbers peak. And then they will also come down. And it and it might not be much longer before we see that trend start to move in the right direction. One thing is, it's a mathematical certainty that it's going to happen. The number is not just going to keep going up to 200, 500, a million, 10 million, 100 million cases a day. So the idea of looking at every single daily data point and using that not only as an excuse to panic, but as an excuse to take to Twitter and take the moral high ground and remind everybody to wear a mask. I love that. Like, the problem is there's just not enough people on Twitter reminding you to wear a mask, right? These people that take to Twitter, they're like, what is wrong with you people? Wear a mask when you leave the house. Like, oh, okay. Scott Wapner said it. Maybe I should do it now. I wasn't going to do it, but then I read it on his Twitter, so now I'm going to do it. The people that take to Twitter to just berate the general public like we're not doing enough, Hey, you know what? The pandemic is a problem for a lot of people. Everybody wants to see this thing pass. Nobody is out there actively rooting for the virus. The economic impact has been devastating. People have lost family members. It has really been a rough ride. You could argue that the measures we took made it rougher than it needed to be, but that's a different discussion for a different day. And by the way, I've always defended the idea of the lockdowns early on because we didn't understand the virus very well. We didn't know what we were dealing with. And if you followed me for a while, you know that back in January, February, as this was coming to light, even in December that this thing was coming out of China, nobody's more skeptical of China than I am. So I was the first to say, whoa, we need to get some answers. And a matter of fact, I said, I wrote an article, I think in February, saying we need to look at the data coming out of Italy and South Korea and other countries that our, uh, are our allies because I didn't trust the death rates that were coming out of China. I didn't trust the numbers that were coming out of China. But now we have all that data, and it was as soon as March that I started to think about the idea of being a contrarian, because really, if you had been following my feed, guys like Chris Martinson, there were a few people that picked up on this pandemic early and said it was going to be a big deal. You know, we were a couple of months ahead of the curve. 
And so by March and April, we started to talk about, I don't know what Martinson and those guys did, but I started to talk about, all right, it's time to start thinking about what's going to happen if this isn't as bad as we thought. Then the Fed came in with the unlimited QE bazooka. And really since March and April, I've been saying that this is going to be a race to, you know, 4,000, 5,000 between the S&P and gold. And I just think that's the case. So we were a couple months ahead of the curve. And now, really, I've watched the gate swing all the way in the other direction. June, July, August, pure panic from people. And now as the case numbers start to bump back up again, pure panic. You got to realize, too, that looking at this type of data is not something the public in general is accustomed to. Nobody sat around their computer any other year and monitored the amount of global flu cases as they came in on a daily basis. If we did, you could probably scare the shit out of people using that data too, right? Nobody sat around and said, well, it's good. It's been a really bad flu season. We're, you know, we're plus 5,000 cases on November 20th uh, versus November 20th last year. Nobody did that. Everybody just went about their daily lives. And if you got the flu, you stayed home. You tried not to give it to people. You rested up. And that was it. And people died from the flu every year. And people got sick from the flu every year. And we got a flu shot every year. And so the response to COVID as a factor of how much more deadly COVID is than the flu, in my opinion, hasn't been anywhere near in lockstep with the way that we respond to the flu. Nobody thinks about the flu at all during the year. I mean, generally, we if you don't get sick or a family member isn't sick, you don't really think about it. And nobody thinks about it until they have very bad symptoms. If you have the sniffles, you go out. If you sneeze a couple of times, hey, that's just the winter. People get sick. It's seasonal allergies. It's this. It's that. It's whatever. I feel like shit today. I'm still going out. I can't miss work. I got to do this. I got to do that. Hey, you know what? That's just a fact of life. I'm not saying that that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that's just how it goes. I mean, getting sick in the winter is a fact of life. So much so that we just don't pay attention to it. So if you were to sit at home and look at the flu numbers every year on a daily basis, yeah, you could whip yourself up into a total fucking panic every single year. But we just don't do that because we realize that, hey, it's probably not going to be that big of a deal if you get the flu. It might suck for a day or two, but that's it. Now, COVID is worse than the flu. No one is disputing that. I'm not disputing that. There's a lot of things about COVID we don't know still. We don't know about the long-term effects. We won't know till we have a long-term to to measure those. So maybe a year we'll get some data. Five years we'll get more data. Ten years we'll get more data. But that's not going to change our actions now. We're on the precipice of a vaccine. Some people are going to take it. Others aren't going to. Between herd immunity and the vaccine, we're going to do a pretty good job in ending the pandemic, according to Dr. Fauci. So if COVID is, they're saying, about three and a half to four times as deadly as the flu, which is likely, we're talking about a virus that has an overall estimated infection fatality rate, and I'm reading here, a peer-reviewed, accepted, and edited paper by John P. A. Ioannidis, which was published in the Bulletin of the World Health Organization. All right, that's the organization that all the social media companies want you to know that they are handing out the truth. This is the company line here I'm reading. Peer-reviewed paper, October of 2020. Across 51 locations, the median COVID-19 infection fatality rate was 0.27%. The rate was 0.09% in locations with COVID-19 population mortality rates less than the global average, 0.2% in locations with 118 to 500 COVID-19 deaths per million people, and 0.57% in locations with more than 500 COVID-19 deaths 
per million people. In people less than 70 years old, less than 70, infection fatality rates ranged from 0.0% to 0.31% with crude and corrected medians of 0.05%. So if you're under 70, 0.05%, which means you have a 99.95% chance of survival. Now, given that this is worse than the flu by a factor of two, three, four times, but that the infection fatality rate is still what I would consider to be relatively low. I mean, we're not dealing with Ebola here. Do the actions of the country match? Are they, do they match relative to what we do for the flu? Right? I know it's not the flu. I took exception with people saying COVID was the flu. Uh, especially in February, March, we were trying to figure it out. I was actually pissed when people were saying it's the flu because uh, I wanted to make sure that we were giving it It's due respect while we were trying to figure out the intricacies of it. So what action do we take every winter for the flu? Well, really nothing. We buy some cold medicine, we tough it out for a couple of days, and that's it. So should we do that for COVID? No, we should probably take more stringent action, right? After all, it is three or four times more deadly than the flu. So as a response, what is three or four times more than doing pretty much nothing. Is it locking down the entire country and canceling Thanksgiving and Christmas? I don't think so. I really don't. I think we are panicking and we don't have a full understanding of the virus. I mean, we do. The scientific community does. Papers like this one I'm looking at do. Dr. Fauci understands it. I feel like I have, you know, a decent understanding of it. I'm not an epidemiologist and I'm not a doctor and this certainly isn't medical advice. But I think there are a lot of people out there that don't really understand it relative to the flu, relative to what we deal with on a daily basis and relative to the impact that it has on our economy and on the well-being of people in the country. So I think the idea of panicking on a daily basis is not smart. I think it does a lot more harm than good. Now, granted, of course, some of these people are the same people that were panicking and saying, shut down the markets when the markets crashed back in March. You know, for some people, it's just a reality check that sometimes shit goes wrong, which is good because the whole country at this point has felt like everybody owes it the feeling of comfort at all times. And that's just not natural. It doesn't occur in nature. And it's not how life is. And the sooner you prepare for the reality that things aren't always going to go your way and things aren't always going to be comfortable, the better job you're going to do in dealing with problems as they arise. I was telling somebody yesterday, they said, why do you take cold showers? I was talking about I take cold showers all the time. Because I like the idea of being comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I stole that line from somewhere. Maybe Jocko or somebody who had talked about this, Tim Ferriss. But the idea is, you you know, when the cold water hits the top of your back, the ice cold water, it, it shocks your nervous system. It wakes you up. It forces you to be present. And then to stand there while you're feeling discomfort, And, you know, it takes a second to catch your breath sometimes. That's a good thing because you're adapting to discomfort. And people should be embracing things like that instead of trying to feel more comfortable all the time about everything. Because all that does is it just leads to turmoil and more volatility when the inevitable bad news strikes. And I hate to tell you, folks, but bad news is coming in life And in general, it just can't be all sunshine and rainbows. Actions have consequences. And so the idea that, and this is especially true for markets. If you're conditioned to markets only going up, and the idea of a 20% drawdown 
like we saw in March, is unfathomable, which it is for people because you saw not only were news anchors panicking, but wealth managers and RIAs were freaking out, taking PPP loans and panicking on Twitter. You could see people. I mean, they had no clue what to do. And there were some firms that were under real distress because all their clients that are so used to the line that they've been fed by these RIAs that the market only goes up, well, they wanted some fucking answers when it finally went down. (laughs) So the idea is to prepare for the discomfort in advance. So when it happens, you're not completely shocked and you can remain calm and you can deal with it. It's like getting choked in jujitsu. The first time you get choked, you freak out. Your heart races, you think you're going to die. You know, you have no idea what you're doing or how to get out of whatever position you're in. And then after the next, like, thousand times you get choked, all of a sudden you calm down a little bit more. And when you roll with higher belts, they're not out there huffing and puffing and breathing and freaking out and spazzing out and running all over the place. They're calm and they're collected and they know you're trying to kill them and they know they're trying to kill you back when you're sparring. I mean, we're not actually trying to kill each other. But they know that you're trying to submit them or choke them and and the other uh, and, and it's true in the other direction as well. But what you find is the calmer that you are, the clearer you're able to think, the better you're able to react. So this idea of, oh, we got to shut down the markets because they're down 20% is the same panic that, by the way, probably led a lot of people to miss buying the lows. Remember Ackman was on CNBC? Hell is coming. Actually, Bill, you just bottom ticked it. Now, he made a lot of money off of it, so I don't know what his trading strategy was, but I think he did all right. But that was the same panic that people now, I think, that are working themselves up into a frenzy about these daily case numbers are going to look back on in six months and say, man, maybe I was a little over the top then. We didn't really know exactly, you know, there were a lot of unknowns, but they're really... I don't think there are that many unknowns anymore. I think we got a pretty good grasp on this. And as I have been saying for a year, having the entire scientific community globally behind this thing, trying to solve this problem is a lot of torque. And that's why I was confident that we were going to see vaccine tailwinds, headlines in the form of vaccine headlines, and QE move the market to all-time highs. And I have been saying that as far back as March and April. We got the QE bazooka. Markets really, they didn't like it. Remember, they went down even after the QE announcement. And I said, hey, there's nothing left but for the scientific community to get to work. And once the ball was rolling in you know, late February, early March, I stopped being critical of the government's response because I thought they dropped the ball at first. But then I thought they did about as good of a job as you could expect government to do. And I was optimistic about the fact that the private sector was working on the problem and that everybody has a vested interest in solving this problem. And I said that many times on this podcast, from the guy that runs a 7-Eleven around the corner from you to the guy that is the CEO of Pfizer, everybody wants to solve this problem. Everybody has an economic interest in solving this problem. That's one of the beautiful things about the market, right? I mean, people are doing it for the humanitarian reasons too, but there's Really, there's a profit motive for the vaccine too and there's a profit motive for other businesses because all these other places can't reopen until we achieve some type of immunity because the government thinks that we can't make decisions for ourselves. By the way, too, if the government just reopened everything and they said, hey, restaurants can open, this can open, that can open, whatever, people could still make a choice as to whether or not they want to go out or not. You know, the government reopening everything doesn't force elderly people or immunocompromised people out of their house and into the public. All it says is, we think you're capable of making a decision about your own well-being. So then it boils down to, are you one of these people that thinks that the government has to tell you exactly what you can do and when you can do it? Or are you one of these people that think that you're capable of making decisions on your own. Now, the funny thing is, there's a lot of liberal politicians that think that they know what's best for the country in terms of the lockdowns, but they're not abiding by those rules themselves. 
What do I mean? This morning, San Francisco Chronicle. Justin, Governor Gavin Newsom attended a birthday party last week that included people from several households. The type of gathering his administration has discouraged during the coronavirus pandemic. After the Chronicle published this story online, Newsom issued an additional statement acknowledging that attending the party was an error in judgment. While our family followed the restaurant's health protocols and took safety precautions, we should have modeled better behavior and not joined the dinner. Listen, the solution is right here, Newsom. Open your eyes. Open your eyes, buddy. What did you do? You made a calculated decision. You weighed out the risk-reward for your family. You decided we could go out and be careful. You decided you had had enough of staying home. You wanted some social interaction. So you went out and you did it. There's nothing wrong with that, Newsom. You made a personal decision that you're going to be responsible for. For you, for your family, your... You know, Gavin Newsom is not smarter than everybody in the country. He Maybe he's a very smart guy. I don't know anything about him. But he's smart enough to realize the risks of what he was doing and to do it anyway. So why does he have this idea that he needs to tell the entire state what they can and can't do in the same regard? Now, these are the same politicians that are telling you we can't have the holidays this year. You can't have Christmas. You can't have Thanksgiving this year. Newsom is out having parties on his own. Oh, okay. So lockdowns for everybody except me. Which, you know what? Would be less of a shitty thing. Would be less, you know, toxic hypocrisy. If their decision to lock down didn't have this enormous economic impact on the people across the country. It is ruining people's businesses. It is ruining people's livelihoods. It is ruining people's lives. It is dumping stress onto people that wasn't there. Stress on top of the pandemic. While all the while, the politicians aren't taking their own advice. So the consequences are very grave and very dire to, you know, mitigate an impact slightly, maybe. But the idea that somebody like Chuck Schumer wants us to cancel Thanksgiving or Lori Lightfoot in Chicago wants us to cancel Thanksgiving when they're both out holding rallies in the middle of their cities surrounded by crowds of people. I just saw a video this morning of Chuck Schumer out somewhere, no mask, talking to a crowd of people, I think celebrating Joe Biden and he's surrounded by people and they're whooping it up and they're cheering and then whatever. And then the fact that that guy leaves the streets, goes back to his office and says, draft me up a stay at home order where we need to tell people they can't have Thanksgiving. They can't have their families over to their homes during the holiday season this year. That's asinine. This is supposed to be the party that's fighting against fascism, right? And everybody's okay with not only politicians telling you how you can or cannot celebrate the holidays. And by the way, my family is taking major precautions for the holidays. Major. You know why? Because it's a family decision. We got together as a family. We made a decision as a family. We want to protect the vulnerable as a family. And so we're making that decision. We didn't need Chuck Schumer to call us up and say, hey, you guys better take uh, protective measures uh, this uh, holiday season. No, we made the decision as a family, just like millions of other families across the country are capable of doing. So when you see somebody like Lightfoot say, don't have your friends and family over to your house, that's what she said this week. She issued a uh, advisory as well. Don't have your family and friends over. And then a couple days before that, she's out in a crowd of people talking about how the Joe Biden victory is a huge win. And she's surrounded by people. And then like hours later, she's telling people, cancel Thanksgiving. 
Not cancel your pre-planned rallies full of thousands of people. Cancel Cancel your small, intimate gatherings at your house with the people that are closest to you. There is a hypocrisy there that is blinding. And this is why the Democrats did so fucking bad during this election. I mean, the turnout was robust, but they didn't win in any kind of landslide. And a big reason for that is this kind of hypocrisy. Nancy Pelosi says, shut down all the businesses. By the way, I need to go to the salon and get my hair done. That's bullshit. All right, that is bullshit. You can't have people legislating these things with these massive consequences. I mean, this isn't affecting a couple thousand people. This is affecting hundreds of millions of people in the country, these decisions. And then to go out and disobey their own orders, they should be put in jail for that. Seriously. If Gavin Newsom wants to shut down all of California and say, don't go to house parties, and then he gets caught going to a house party, that's like some kind of treason, right? (laughs) I mean, that's that's like treason against your state. That would be like him signing a law making, uh, you know, homicide a instant death penalty and then him getting caught up in a homicide and doing six months of probation. You can't do that. You have to eat your own cooking. And a lot of these politicians don't eat their own cooking. And that plays into a bigger hypocrisy narrative that I think is what caused a lot of people to drift away from the left um, during the election. You know, another place that we saw a lot of hypocrisy was in the defund the police movement. I mean, we know now that people on the left have come out and said, well, we really kind of fucked up by pushing this defund the police narrative, and that cost us. But looking at it in a different way, many of the mayors like the mayor of Seattle, who was allowing the occupation of her city to happen. Uh, The Chaz, the autonomous zone, she was okay with that. But then when those people showed up outside her house, what did she do? She called the police. Thank you very much. It's like all these politicians walking around with armed security talking about, oh, we want to take your guns. It's like, no, you want the guns when they're for your protection. We want those same rights as citizens. You guys aren't any better than us. You're just our elected representatives. You're not super citizens. You're just citizens like the rest of us. So it's this kind of hypocrisy. And there's hypocrisy on the right too. There definitely is. One of the big points of hypocrisy I pointed out is pretending to give a shit about the deficit And then running up all this spending. Pretending to be economically and fiscally conservative when all we're doing, you know, all we were doing under a Trump administration was reckless monetary policy. And now we're printing more money. So there's hypocrisy there too. But I think it's that kind of hypocrisy relating to COVID and these shutdowns that are really making the left look bad right now. So another piece of hypocrisy relates to free speech the left I kept hearing the left say this was a win for democracy when Joe Biden won the election it's a win for free speech no it isn't nope the people on the far left are not interested in free speech people are apologizing now for things that they have thought and haven't even said you can't even have free speech in your head anymore without somebody freaking out and getting pissed off about some word you used. You know, I saw a post the other day, please don't use words like insane to uh, describe things. Or you say, dude, that movie was insane. Don't say that because it is uh, hurting the feelings of insane people. Listen, I'm insane. I don't give a shit. You know, we, we there's going to be no words left. There's going to be no descriptors left. There's going to be no adjectives left. What was the stupid congressional hearing a couple of weeks ago where 
Hirono from Hawaii said, please don't use the term sexual preference. <laughs> How do you describe the people you want to have sex with them? What is that? Your sexual non-preference? Should we, I mean, should, should everybody be forced to have sex with everybody in the name of equality? You can't decide who you want to have sex with anymore. That's racist and sexist. We need to have sex with men and women of uh, all shapes, colors, sizes. Being attracted to one type of person is no longer allowed. That is, uh, you're pigeonholing yourself. You can, you're no longer allowed to have a preference. You can't say it's a preference. You're making it sound like it is a preference. It is a preference, idiot. I mean, <laughs> what are we doing? What are we doing? This idea of free speech and protecting free speech on the left, they think they're protecting free speech. What they don't understand is protecting free speech means protecting the stuff you don't agree with. And that's a big difference between the left and the right. Ted Cruz said this on some interview I think he did with uh, Prager yesterday I was watching. And I don't even like Ted Cruz. If you listen to this podcast, Ted Cruz, I find him to be annoying and fucking pompous and I hate the way he talks and just, I just don't like him. I mean, I like his policies that he stands for, but I, I don't don't like him as a politician. But he said, hey, free speech means you have to be okay with people disagreeing with you. You have to respect people disagreeing with you. And on the right, when Joe Biden won, you don't see people on the right out there looting and rioting and setting stores on fire. At least I haven't seen it. And trust me, the mainstream media would be covering it if it was out there. Somebody said to me a couple months ago, well, the protests and the looting and the riot, you know, there's people on the right and there's people on the left doing that. And I was like, I don't think so. You know, you don't have a lot of conservatives out there burning down stores. And just think of the difference. If Trump had 306 at this point and Biden had 220 versus it being the other way around, which is where it is right now. I mean, you don't see any of these militias out there trying to, you know, I mean, there were people that showed up at polling places. They were trying to watch uh, people count ballots, but I didn't see any property damage. I didn't see any assaults taking place. I didn't see any cities burning to the ground. I didn't see police cars on fire. And you know that if Trump had won in a decisive victory on election day, that we would be still right now on the 14th of November dealing with those types of riots and looting and protests. So there is hypocrisy there. Now, while we're on the topic of wonderful fucking ideas, Elizabeth Warren came out last week and urged Joe Biden to cancel student debt. All right, the guy hasn't even been inaugurated yet. And Warren is out saying, cancel billions of dollars in student debt. Now, I don't know if this is going to happen because of how Congress is going to wind up. I don't know if they're going to be able to get this through Congress. I don't know how much can be done via executive order. But let's just talk about the idea for a couple reasons. First is the idea of canceling debt. If we start to cancel debt, large tranches of debt, whether it's student debt, municipal debt, state debt, any kind of debt owed to the government, we're setting a standard. We've already normalized debt as a way of life in this country. People take it on to pay for their daily expenses, and it really isn't frowned upon. Debt is seen as a, an instrument to economic growth, but what it really is is it's a burden. What you're really doing is you are taking on an obligation to pay back more than what it is that you borrow. You pay back your principal and you pay back your interest. And most people, when they take on debt, student loan debt, credit card debt, uh, even mortgage debt, there's still no carry trade with inflation because even if inflation runs at you know, three, four percent CPI runs at three, four percent. Most of this debt, mortgage debt now, you know, is going to be over three percent 
credit card debt is going to be over 10%. Student loan debt's going to be over 10%. So you're paying back, even, even as you inflate away some of it, you're paying back more than you take on. And that as a means of getting by on a daily basis is, of course, a very Ponzi-ish way to look at things. So it's bad enough that we've normalized debt in general. But now this idea of canceling debt. We're just going to go in, we're going to cancel it. And where does it go? Well, it just goes somewhere. It just it's a it's a cell on an Excel spreadsheet that goes to zero. Does that have any effect? Well, in addition to the actual financial effect, think about the psychological effect. If people get their student debt canceled, the next road is canceling mortgage debt, credit card debt. Which of those things is next? And What signal does it send to people that have debt outstanding now? It says, don't pay off your debt because at some point it'll be canceled. I have a friend of mine who has enough money in the bank, this is a true story, has enough money in the bank to pay off their student loans, which are significant because uh, they went through several postgraduate programs, but they're not doing it because they're just waiting for it to be canceled. And their financial advisor told them that. Don't pay it off. You could you could make yourself whole and take all or maybe half your debt off your balance sheet right now, but don't do it because it might just disappear one day. So what is that what signal does that send to people with credit card debt, with mortgage debt? Should we stop paying our mortgages in hopes that someday the debt just disappears? Well, that doesn't sound like a very bright idea. But that's the signal you send to the market. Not only that, I think the biggest problem with this is you are really doing dirty to the people that paid off their debt legitimately. What about all these Americans out there that took on second and third jobs to pay off their student loan debt? Or maybe maybe somebody's got $10,000 in credit card debt and they worked their fucking ass off for four or five years to pay that fucker down an extra whatever, you know, $300 a month so they could get that under control and they got out from underneath that by working hard and then all of a sudden they wake up one morning and they just see debt forgiveness for a certain group of people with a certain kind of debt. What what message does that send to people? It's not a good one. It's not a message of common sense. It's a message that you are being rewarded for doing the wrong thing. That's what it is. If you have a car note, you pay off that note every month. There's nobody out there arguing, oh, cars are a fundamental human right. We need to have cars. So we cancel all auto debt. Everybody gets a car. But really, if you wanted to make the argument that having a car is far more advantageous than having a postgraduate degree, which for some people, by the way, it is. Some people need a car to get to their job as a plumber where they earn a living to support their family. And if they don't have their truck to get them to plumbing jobs, it's a fucking backbreaker for them. Well, just like other people could argue, all right, well, I need to have this degree in whatever studies to get a better job. Oh, okay. Well, education is a fundamental human right now, apparently. So we're going to pay that for you. But the car note, you still got to pay on. So the plumber who drives the van every day, he's got to pay off that note. But the person that's in school studying postmodern theory, that degree gets paid for it, even though then they leave college and become a bartender. Okay. And of course, this all plays into a broader picture of a really how we're starting to look at the economy and how badly the economy is starting to distort and be skewed. I mean, all of the things that make up economics 101, you take an econ 101 class, I mean, the things you're going to learn about, you learn about the Laffer curve. You learn about supply and demand. You learn about taxation. You learn about price discovery. All those basics, they just go right out the window when you do stuff like this. You know, you learn about credits and debts. You learn about a balance sheet. I mean, assets and liabilities. 
They don't really even exist. Like, what is a liability anymore? It's like our money. We're printing so much of it, and it's backed by nothing. What is it really anymore? My friend said to me on the phone a couple weeks ago, I think I said this on my last podcast, what is money anymore? He said, I said, I don't really know. I really don't. We are hell-bent on abusing the U.S. dollar and printing so many of them until something breaks, and then we can't go back. And it's all sunshine and rainbows now while we're doing it. And it seems like this perfect solution. But you don't even need to be an economist to understand that if something is so easily, uh, appears as such an easy way out, you should probably be skeptical about it. I mean, and that's just in life in general, right? There, there generally isn't an easy way out. And printing more dollars appears to be the easy way out. But what it's doing is it's bifurcating society even further. It's widening the inequality gap even further. Way more, way more than, you know, racism or ageism or sexism could ever do. But people don't understand it, so they don't really know that. They don't really understand the mechanics of how that's happening. So it's bifurcating society even more. And it is a road that eventually, mathematically, certainly leads to the destruction of the currency. And we're going to see that in gold prices, I think, going forward. A lot of people talk about, oh, the dollar versus the euro or the DXY, right? Which is the dollar against a basket of other fiat bullshit currencies. Certainly the idea of printing the money into oblivion has been helped along by the fact that other major global central banks are doing the same thing. So everybody kind of, nobody really pays attention to the other countries doing it because everybody's kind of doing it until maybe at some point China will call somebody probably us on our bullshit I think that'll probably be the way it goes down and then we'll start having to ask some major questions but while this is happening all these other countries are complicit in it happening but if you want to look at the value and the strength of the dollar and the purchasing power of the dollar in an objective way without measuring it against other dog shit currencies look at it versus gold And sure, gold is near all-time highs right now, but I think the move for gold is just going to get even more perverse. Um, You know, if you look at a 20-year, 30-year chart of gold, you see it kind of base and um, consolidate before making these moves upwards. We just had a big move upward, and I think that's what's happening now. I think it's probably going to base and consolidate. And I think the next stop is 22, 2400, you know, probably in the next 12 months. That'll happen at some point, and the way that we are viewing economic, monetary, and fiscal policy in this country is only going to help it along. That's why you saw all these investment banks turn bullish on gold over the last couple of months. That's why if you listen to my podcast with Andy Schechtman, he talks about the International Bank of Settlements making gold a tier one asset, and the idea of you know countries like China that's just looking at a digital yuan now, the U.S. has said oh, we haven't really made a decision on the digital dollar. It's like, fuck you. Yes, you have. You know, oh, we're carefully considering. You're not considering it. You knew you were doing it a long time ago. This is just a dog and pony show to make people think that you're considering it. We're running models. You're not running shit. You're not running shit, all right? It's coming. We all know it's coming. Just fucking give us the facts. We can handle it, all right? Just be straight with us. But that direction we're going in, where debt is now nothing, the money is nothing, you know, it's going digital, debt no longer exists, there will be no more price discovery, the stock market is rigged, inflation is going to show up in consumer prices sooner rather than later, it's going to happen at some point, folks, even the precious CPI with all of its hedonic adjustments is going to go tits up at some point. When that happens, gold is going to be the obvious place for money, to put your money to preserve your wealth. And now there's such a small percentage of people that own it, either physical or whatever. And the market is, as Schechtman was saying, really in the process of being cornered to some degree, if he's right about what he says, that any kind of retail influx into real gold, 
whether it's physical or futures, is going to absolutely send the price skyrocketing higher. And it's the only solution. It's a mathematical certainty that gold will move higher if we stay on the current monetary policy path that we're on. And that's it. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And you don't even need to be that smart to figure that out. You just need to know that we can't print money into oblivion. All you got to do is look at the M2 money supply, which is going through the roof. And you have to understand that that has consequences. The nice thing for the politicians in the central banks are that those consequences are ones that people can't see. They don't really notice a 29 cent tick up in the price of the potato chips that they buy. They don't really notice that the value of the money that they saved is depreciating by X percentage every year. You know, inflation is this secretive thief that steals purchasing power, just like printing money does the same thing. You're just redistributing purchasing power that is already in existence and you're doing it silently and nobody really notices. It's quite fucking uncool and nefarious, if I do say so myself. So when we figure that out, by the way, I want to shout out Russell Okung again, who is just crushing it on Twitter. That guy is fucking gets it. He understands that the Fed is the real deep state. But back to what I was saying, the only outlet is gold. The only true asset that is going to hold its value because there's a finite amount of it and it can't be manipulated, the supply cannot be manipulated, is going to be gold. And that's why I'm very long gold and silver, and I expect them both to continue going up. So as I started saying in April, before everybody else was saying it, this is going to be a race to 4,000 between the SPY and gold, 5,000 between the SPY and gold. It's coming. The markets are going up. The Fed's supporting them. I was a couple months ahead of the curve then. Just like I believe I'm going to be a couple months ahead of the curve now when I'm saying that the panic we are enduring now for COVID, I think this is it. I think this is the last hurrah for panic when it comes to COVID. And I think 2021 is going to be a very good year with lots of tailwinds in terms of the pandemic. And I've been saying that for months now. Just as I've been saying for months that there is going to be a play in travel and leisure. And if you don't think that next summer's travel season is going to be almost back to normal. If I had to guess, I would say next summer's travel season is going to be 80% of normal at least. Because we'll have the vaccine. People are going to be over, many people are already, but you know, people will be over the psychological impact of the virus And things are just going to go back to normal at some point with travel. Everybody wants to get the fuck out. You may even see a bump in travel relative to 2019 before the pandemic because so many people are going to be so stoked to travel and get out of the damn house. So I've thought that there is an opportunity in some of the stocks. Really, most of the market has recovered. I said a couple of months ago, financials hadn't recovered. I liked financials. Those have ticked back up. The XLF has gone from, you know, 23 up to 27. So that's up almost 20% over the last couple of months. I think there's still room in the financials. I think that travel and leisure is going to be very interesting. That's the one sector of the market that is still beat down, along with energy too. Energy's got the shit kicked out of it, but oil demand will come back to as travel and leisure. They'll, they'll, they'll move together as long as uh, OPEC doesn't fuck around or do anything crazy. So I think there's going to be opportunities there. You know, we saw it on the vaccine headline. What rallied that day, like last week when Pfizer came out with the vaccine headline? It was disproportionately travel and leisure. You know, the cruise lines were up 40%. The Jets ETF was up 20%. Those were all names that I've been in and I've disclosed that I've been in. So I lightened up on that move. I still have core positions in a lot of those names. And those are the kind of names I will look to add if we get any more market panic here heading into January, February. If the second wave gets a little bit worse, if lockdowns continue, the market may still plunge on that despite the fact that the market can't really understand maybe that in three, six months, things will be very close to normal, I think. So that's where I think the opportunities lie 
Um, disproportionately right now, long energy, travel and leisure names still. Uh, I'm trying to add opportunistically as those sectors plunge relative to the broader market. I know the broader market's at highs, pay, paying a little bit less attention to that and a little bit more to these specific sectors that I think still have a huge move left to the upside. I'm long those, and I like I like the precious metals. I think the monetary policy is going to be what bails out the financials. You know, I think the banks are basically infinitely reserved at this point, thanks to the Fed, which was part of the reason I liked financials to begin with. So the, these big loan losses that everybody's talking about, I think they'll happen, but I don't think it's going to be a big deal. I think the government is going to cut people more money. There's going to be more stimulus that will help alleviate that. In the process, that will help lift the market and will devalue the dollar, which will in turn make the price of precious metals go up. So that's where the fuck I am, folks. That's where I am right now. That is not investment advice. I'm just talking about what I'm doing. And by the way, I'm the worst. I'm the absolute worst. So make sure you bear that in mind going forward, please. In addition to that, one last thing. I sincerely hope you all have a wonderful weekend, folks. I'm the fuck out of here. Peace.